But uh, I want to read a passage of Scripture to you. Actually, it's just one verse. It might not sound like a Christmas passage. Uh, technically, it's not. Jesus is speaking. He's a baby at Christmas, uh, but he's 30-something toward Easter. And this is in the 11th chapter of Matthew. And verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pause for just a moment of prayer, and then I want to tell you why I think that is what this weary world needs, even in the midst of Christmas, which many would believe to be the happiest time of the year. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christmas Eve, and to spend that together as brothers and sisters in Christ, gathered in your house with your word open in our laps. Lord, we ask that you would give us what we don't have, make us what we are not. Lord, we sit at your feet today, and would you use what we have known perhaps since we were children this time of year, our traditions, and especially these passages. Lord, would you make them live, and would they change our lives? We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I was thinking uh, earlier, it's not often that... Christmas is so close to our Sunday worship service. Last year, it was on Christmas itself. And then today, we spend Christmas Eve together. And uh, in this place, uh, hopefully forever and ever, uh, all you'll ever hear are these passages of Scripture that explain what Christmas is really all about. Though, when we leave this place today and over the next uh, 24, 48, 72 hours... You're going to be making visits with your families, uh, with friends. Uh, most, I, I would say, office parties are already uh, come and gone. But those are likely to be some of the deepest, most ingrained traditions that we have as families. What we've been doing together as the same group of people uh, for as long as we've been alive. And a lot of those things are so important uh, that they carry on as generations come and go. Uh, when you're younger, uh, it, it's totally different than when you're older. And you live long enough, you get to see Christmas from uh, several different angles. Uh, when, when you're a child, you just want to be given permission to run down the steps and tear into everything. At least that's the way it was when we were kids. It lasted about two minutes. There's paper shrapnel everywhere. It's over in a flash and it's done. When you get a little older and you get married, you share that experience with your spouse and vice versa. I found out there are other people who go one at a time. And the whole room stares at you <laughs> while you open it up. And the more slowly, the better, so they can see what you got. And then you have to sit there and wait for it to go all the way around the room before you get another turn to go to the next one. Lunch can be ready by the time you're done. But you have these tra traditions... Uh, maybe it's somewhere in the middle, or maybe you go to one house and it's fast and furious, and the next house it's slow and, and painful. You can tell which one I like better. Um, and then, of course, you've got uh, the culture that changes. And for a lot of us these days, as fast as it's changing, I think uh, maybe it's a little too fast for us. I was in the house, and we were getting ready uh, for guests come over uh, preparing for a party and I had put on um, 
one of the movies that we watch when we're decorating the tree or whatever. And then the other day we put on The Walton's Christmas. That was the pilot that, that the show was about uh, that ran for, for years. I don't know if you've seen it. I've talked about it before. Um, but it's, it's basically not even 24 hours that, that, you, that the movie covers. Uh, it's Christmas Eve, and they're waiting on Dad to come home before Christmas. But they put their tree up on Christmas Eve. That's how different it was just a generation or two ago. And I was thinking, what would it be like to get in a little Christmas time machine and go have Christmas dinner with the Waltons and tell them about Black Friday? <laughs> so you're going to fill up with turkey, and then you all get together. You carpool because parking's crazy. You'll need a helmet. You'll need some shin and elbow pads. And the prize is to get something that's only marginally cheaper than it was the day before. And if you get one and they don't, then you've got a better Christmas. I'm just imagining what they would think of all that. So in that regard, Christmas is different. But in the regard that Christmas is the Christmas story from Scripture, it's always the same. So you've got, uh, you know, unity and diversity for so many different people. And it's the month that's so busy... Unfortunately, you're, you're likely to disappoint more people than you can accommodate only because the invitations are so many and it's so busy. But I tend to prefer these Sundays that are closer to the actual day itself. And if we're faithful to church, it demands we slow down, take the time out, sit down here and think about things that are eternal rather than just temporal. Um, this year will be different for me. When your kids... There's a lot of firsts, right? There's your first steps, your first word, your first bicycle, um, all those firsts. That doesn't stop. I've, I've learned that so far. You still have firsts. This will be the first Christmas where one very important person to our family won't be there. And I know that's the same for a lot of you because between now and last Christmas, we've stood out here in this cemetery and we've said goodbye. So Christmas changes, and it's not that it doesn't have its, its sorrow in there as well. And I was thinking, because I had more time to think this week than I had planned on having. Sometimes your plans change, don't they? Uh, on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I spent the better part of the day commuting back and forth to Duke Hospital. And that came to be because my, my mother receives her treatments there at Duke. And she had my younger brother. There's 11 years difference between us. I call him my baby brother. And he was with her. He's usually uh, in the D.C. area with my middle brother. And mom was able to get her treatments as usual. It's kind of a, a routine. But my brother complained about pain more and more as the day went on. And, and before they went home, she took him downstairs to the ER. And uh, before night, they had diagnosed quite the case of pancreatitis. So it took a night basically in the ER and then a halfway room, I think they call an observation room, waiting on a bed, uh, a ward room, I think technically it's called, uh, the idea of just getting a bed in a hospital these days is different than it used to be. And uh, long story short, as far as my brother, he's home in Virginia. He's undergone the same 
process I did about six years ago. If we find out that the gallbladder is what lets us fly in heaven, my brother and I are grounded. We don't have one. Uh, but we shouldn't have that problem that, that makes you wish you were dead for a while. And he's home with mom in Virginia and, and probably milking this for all it's worth. But to spend three days in a hospital this close to Christmas is something I'd never done before. And um, it's quite the experience because nobody wants to be there over Christmas. You're either there because you're with someone that has to be there or you have to be there yourself. And just watching people's faces uh, as they go about their business, some are working, some are there to receive care. There's trees and, and, and corners and decorations and some Christmas music playing in certain places. Um, but it's not really the place you'd go hunting for the Christmas spirit. Though I did see in people's eyes a multitude of emotions. Some are just doing their job. Some uh, are having a good time, it seems. Some are, are grieving. This is not at all what they expected. And while I was there with my book bag, with some books, planning on trying to figure out then what to say now, um, I just found myself drinking in all, all the, the, the stuff you would never think about unless you're in that situation. You look out the window and cars are still going uh, back and forth as they always do. But in the waiting room for surgery, you, you see families huddled up together together. Uh, Again, some are having conversations, some are reading, some have headphones in, some are wrapped up in blankets like they've been there for days. And then I noticed this clock up on the wall, and immediately I thought of a book that I had read years ago. This theologian who who was a pastor, he's well-known, you would know him likely, but describing what it was like to watch in a waiting room with his loved one entrusted to someone who could save their life if possible and watching the second hand go around every minute and the minute hand go around every hour and given enough time that hour hand will go around twice during a day but even if you took the batteries out or cut the cord and stopped the clock time's going to go no matter what and and it's a feeling of, of helplessness that that you no longer control your little world like you did just days ago. Your plans have been thrown out the window. Your concerns that you pined over are meaningless. And things that you took for granted, perhaps, are held um, with an open hand. You don't know how this might play out. So it's a wonderful place to think about what to say. And what came to mind, looking over the service order... Uh, as far as the songs go, that David had chosen, Silent Night, which is what we'll sing before we leave. And I'm thinking, in all this noise, I'm looking at all these people who are basically existing in silence because the situation is serious. And though the song that's the most recorded carol of all time, Silent Night, describes that night Christ was born in those words, a silent night, but a holy night. And then I got to thinking about how different that silent holy night was than any of our Christmas experiences and parties and gift giving. Silent is usually not the word for it. 
Uh, holy, yes, if we b- invite God to his own birthday party, right? Uh, but as far as Mary, Joseph, and a manger, I think it would be about the equivalent of spending Christmas in a hospital. This is not the way we expected. We didn't ask for a census. Uh, we expected to have room or accommodations. Um, it wasn't at all what they had planned, I don't think. And then something my mother had said while we were waiting made me think. And then I started looking through Scripture. Where do we find holiness and silence? Do they mix often? Or is that the only time we find a silent night and a holy night? And the more I looked and the more I remembered... Just about every holy moment where God breaks into this world we live in and made himself known to someone, across the board it's always silent. There's nothing to say when God speaks to you. Usually it's a terrifying experience. And I thought, well, let's run through a a few of them just for the sake of thinking our way through this. We haven't got to Genesis 15 yet. We will in the next few weeks or month or so. This is where God cuts a covenant with Abraham. In the old world, when you had an agreement similar to a contract, it was called cutting a covenant. And the way it worked, this isn't lovely to think of before lunch, but they'd split animals from head to tail in half and lay them in a row opposite each other with, with like a runway or an aisle between the two, and there'd be several different types of animals The idea was between the two parties making the agreement, when they walk through them together, the idea is what happened to these animals should happen to us or more if either one of us should break this covenant, right? And what we're going to learn when we study this is that Abraham fell into this horrifying sleep state while this burning torch went through the middle of that aisle between the split animals alone which is unprecedented. That's not how covenants work. But the image is clear. I don't need your end of this to hold for me to keep my promise to you. I don't break my promises. I'll hang the whole covenant between God and man on my shoulders because you're going to go back and forth in faithfulness and fidelity to my word and our agreement. Abraham's out. He's silent. He's not even part of it. God does the work. Now, fast forward a bit. You've got Moses, burning bush. There's fire again. He's curious. He goes to look at it. Here's the voice of God. Hides his face from God. He's told to take his shoes off. It's holy ground. And then when God explains to him what he has for him to do, what does he say? I can't speak. I, I don't want to speak. I'm not the guy to speak. You find somebody else that chooses his brother instead. But... He pleads the fifth, basically. He's silent. And God gets the work done through another set of means. Uh, Elijah, the prophet, he's the one that when he prayed, fire came down and burn up the offering and burn up the stones and licked up the water. And everyone knew there that day that Jehovah was the true God. Well, there's a story where he's hiding from wicked Queen Jezebel in a cave, scared for his life. And the voice of God comes to him in the cave and asks him what he's doing there. You're my prophet and you're hiding in a cave. And then this whirlwind comes by and rips the rocks apart. 
And then after that, you've got this earthquake that shakes the mountain that the cave's in. And after that, you've got fire again. But then comes this still small voice to say, I don't speak in the fire. I don't speak in the earthquake. I don't speak in the whirlwind. I speak very quietly to people who are paying attention. And you need to listen to me right now. Almost like Samuel in the night. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. You've got to be quiet to hear it. So you've got silence on the part of man here and the work being done on the part of God. And then Job, you remember him? Lost everything in an afternoon. All the servants, one at a time, lined up to tell him what he'd lost. One's still speaking while the other one comes. Most of the book is spent on him and conversations between his friends who want to figure out why he deserves such a horrible fate. You must have done something. And he's saying, I haven't done anything. I've lived righteously. We knew that at the beginning of the book. This is a test. But along the way, it seems Job gets the attitude that he's deserving of an explanation as to why he should suffer so much. But before he gets the option to ask, God starts asking him questions. It's at the end. It's the most dramatic part of the whole thing. It's like 101 questions, seemingly. And they all start with, where were you? Job, when I laid the foundations of the world, where were you when I made Leviathan? Where were you when I decided how these deer would have their young? All this scientific stuff. And what does Job do at the end of it? Puts his hand on his mouth. The only thing he says is, I spoke about things I didn't know what I was talking about. I'll be quiet now. Because you're obviously God. What about Isaiah? Uh, Woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Jeremiah, basically the same. How much of Jesus' teaching left his audience speechless? Or saying things like, this guy talks like no one we've ever heard. Scribes don't talk like this. This man has authority. How many times did people come to catch him in his words and just went with their mouths open but nothing coming out? They're flabbergasted at the truth he would speak. Didn't he spend 40 days in the wilderness alone? in solitude to get together with his father before the three years of ministry only to be tempted by the devil in the middle of his planned silence? Wasn't there three hours of darkness at his crucifixion? As if God just kind of snuffed out the sun like we'd snuff out a candle to tell the world what's going on here is more holy than you have business watching. He's taking care of the sin debt of the entire world for all who will trust him by faith in one fell swoop lights out silence it's a holy moment and then something that hasn't happened yet when this same man opens the seventh seal of judgment where he'll once for all settle all the accounts outstanding as far as sin before that seventh seal is open there's a space of silence for about a half hour in the heavens before that takes place as if that's the most holy of moments ever done. Silence. So I'm sitting there in a waiting room with no one to talk to. I forgot my headphones, and that's probably a good thing. Had some books and just watched and paid attention. Watched the way my mother interacted with her baby boy who's in his 30s now. Um, It was something to see, but I think what... I'm getting at here what I learned I hope maybe it's helpful to some someone else having a week that's interrupted that one silent night made possible 
what we read to begin with. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Christmas wears me out, whether I spend three days in the hospital or not. Life wears me out. My kids wear me out. I wear me out. I'm worn out. I'm just middle-aged. Stuff's already starting to break. This thumb started clicking not long ago, and they tell me that I need a shot in that joint with a needle. So I'll just let it click. I'll be fine. What? What is this? I don't. I don't like it. I'm. I'm more interested than ever of this rest, this permanent rest that's that's available to me from all the horrors of sin in this world paid for by someone else and costs me nothing, costs him everything. That's a holy moment that deserves silence. Now, I got home Friday evening, and we did some work around the house with the boys, and I got a phone call yesterday afternoon, someone from this church family from a hospital bed. Got bad news. Bad news. Worse news than we've had. Plans change. I hung up the phone and I thought, that's a holy moment. God's child is now called upon to suffer. God makes no mistakes. It's all for a reason. Almost demands silence. Just slow down and, and pay attention to that. What is that? What's it for? And who do we depend on to get through it? So, I guess if we put this in the form of a question, has the holiness of God broken into you and your life such that silence is all that seems appropriate? If it hadn't happened yet, it probably will. If it hadn't happened in critical moments of your life, maybe there needs to be an adjustment. If you can get through a Christmas without some holiness and silence, then maybe we're doing Christmas wrong. I, I, I look at Christmas as Luke 2 and North Pole. North Pole's its own thing. Luke 2's everything. It requires silence at times because it's holy. So at the end of our work, that, that's that rest word. Come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. There's labor here in this life, but the rest that he's talking about, we think of rest as what we get as a reward for working hard. And there's no sleep like the sleep after really wearing yourself out, you know, in the yard somewhere. But this rest that he's talking about is the only rest where he did all the work and you get the rest. And that seems consistent through all these things that we just read, and especially at Christmas. So I think the prayer that I'll pray before we sing this song that's, that's so lovely is uh, maybe the prayer Job prayed. And it'll, it'll, it, it's short, maybe pathetically short. If you'll close your eyes, I'll say it. Father in heaven, you be holy and we'll be quiet. In your strong name, amen.